since us are unethical. I speak my mind and it's strictly political. Alright, hello and welcome to episode 8 of Strictly Political. I'm Matthew Bryan, joined as always by the fantastic Mason Kennedy. How are you doing, Mason? Matt, I'm doing great and I'm excited to be here talking about the West Wing once again. Yes, yeah, so we're back. We have a full episode this week, not, you know, episode seven and a half. You know, if we didn't get an episode this week, we would have to do, you know, 7.75. You know, that, that, that wouldn't be good. So, you know, glad we were able to finally make some time to, to get together and, and pump this episode out. Absolutely. I'm excited to dive into episode eight. Yeah. Uh, before we begin, though, we have uh, some some new countries with with, with uh, a listener from, which is which is uh, interesting. Today we have um, a listener from uh, Germany, from Bavaria, which is that's where Munich is. I'm pretty sure, and we have a listener from uh, Gelderland in the Netherlands. So that's some some new countries, uh, which is always always fun, and also uh, some new states. Uh, we have listeners from Minnesota, Illinois, Connecticut, and Kansas. So that's uh, that's uh, fun. Also, I do like that we have we have two listeners from Minnesota, one from Minneapolis, and one from St. Paul. So I like that we're we're equally represented in the in the Twin Cities here. Absolutely. And if it ever gets to the point where we have more in one than the other, I will be asking one of those listeners uh, to depart from the podcast. I believe it's only fair that we have equal numbers from each of the Twin Cities. Well, I think that we should just ask somebody else from the other city to come in and, and, and listen. Certainly, I suppose that would be nicer for us. But how easy is that to uh, to, to rile up the polls over in one of the Twin Cities? I, I can't imagine doing that myself. That's true. That, that, that does sound hard. And our, our, our Illinois listener is from Chicago, um, not surprising. And our Connecticut listener is from Enfield, which I've never heard of in, in Connecticut. Maybe it's, you know, Josh Lyman. He's from Connecticut. So maybe he's listening to our podcast. The fictional character, Josh Lyman, probably a big fan of our podcast. And then somebody from Whamigo, Kansas, which doesn't really sound like a real place, but uh, I, I trust that it is. I trust that it is, and Kansas is the birthplace of my grandfather, so I'm happy to have a listener mm. uh, from that beautiful state. Maybe it's it's the ghost of your grandfather listening to this podcast. It's it's the it's perhaps my living grandfather who ah. is still alive. Well, he's, he's probably not in Kansas anymore. He said he lives there, so maybe it's the ghost. That is of, correct. Maybe it's the ghost of your great grandfather. It very easily could be uh, Otto. If you're listening, uh, thank you for tuning in. Yeah. All right. Well, then one one last thing before we hop into this episode uh, for the people that um, skipped episode seven and a half. Um, first of all, don't. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we had a quiz where the winner earns my undying love. So if you want my undying love, you've got to take the quiz and send in your score. But with that, um, we have a new a new podcast for any feedback or questions or you know, comments you guys have on the episode, it's strictlypoliticalpod at gmail.com. So, um, yeah, if you want to send in any feedback or questions or, you know, you want to tell us who you thought won the episode, um, feel free to, to do that with our, our brand new email. Um, but with, with that out of the way, um, we have, um, let's, hop in, let's hop into the episode here. Uh, we have uh, season one, episode eight. It was entitled Enemies. Originally aired November 17th, 1999, uh, directed by Alan Taylor, written by Aaron Sorkin, Ron Osborne, and Jeff Reno. 
So do you have a two-minute summary for us here, Mason? I do, Matt. Uh, we start off this episode with a plot. The Bartlett administration is confident they're going to be passing a banking bill through Congress. Everyone's really excited. The president's running around. But it turns out at the last second, Congress people Brodrick, Eaton, and potentially Toby's friend Crane have attached a land-use rider that would allow them to strip mine large parts of Montana. Uh, this seems to be an act of retribution against the president for winning the election. And Josh and Toby are really excited to just veto the bill. They want to get rid of it. They want to uh, save face while Sam and Mandy want to eat the rider and pass it so that they can help the people, uh, the, the citizens of the United States who would have benefited from the banking bill. Throughout the episode, Mandy is fighting with everybody to try to get this turned around. Eventually, she yells at Josh, telling him that they, as an administration, are fighting the wrong fights, and they're fighting them for the wrong reasons. Josh realizes at the very end of the episode that they can use the Antiquities Act to allocate the Montana mining land as a national park, saving the land and the bill. And uh, then we see Josh at the very end telling the president uh, what his plan is, while also perhaps inspired by Mandy's yelling at him, telling the president that they talk about enemies more than they used to, which seems to be what the title is all about. The B-plot for today was that during a cabinet meeting, Bartlett cajoles Hoynes and basically makes him look dumb at the very beginning. Uh, he catches him in his own words in kind of a weird, pedantic way, maybe, and suggests that he doesn't prioritize the American people. Danny hears about the story and asks CJ and Hoynes about it. Uh, both of them refute that anything happened. Eventually, CJ asks Mandy for advice. She says to trade Danny for 30 minutes with the president. Uh, she agrees and takes the deal to him where he accepts but protects the stenographer that ended up leaking the story and says that if she gets fired, he'll write about it. CJ lets the president know, and the president accepts. Uh, the president doesn't believe that Hoynes wasn't the person that leaked it at first, but is eventually convinced. And then we have this big climactic fight between Hoynes and the president where they yell at each other in the Oval Office. Hoynes is, you know, saying, hey, what have I done to you other than provide the South? And we, we learn a little bit more about the background here. Uh, of these two because Bartlett says that he shouldn't have had to beg Hoynes to be the vice president uh, and that it weakened him for right from the start. <clears throat> so that's the B plot. And then we're wrapping it up with the C plot, which uh, ironically I wrote the most about considering it's the least important in terms of a national scale. But uh, Mallory comes to see Leo in the morning. They talk about his ex-wife. Uh, he ends up giving her their two. Uh, Leo gives Mallory what was once his tickets to the opera with his ex-wife. It's the Beijing opera that's coming to town. Uh, Mallory invites Sam to go with her. Sam asks Leo if that's all right. Leo assigns Sam a birthday message uh, for one of the assistant secretaries of transportation. He accepts and gets really passionate about this project after the president tells him that he should really, quote, do a job of it. Sam ends up being late for the opera but convinces Mallory to wait for him, and she eventually realizes that Leo's the one that did this on purpose in order to get... Uh, in order to stop Sam from going to the opera with his daughter. Leo and the president both defend the choice when Mallory goes to confront them. The president emphasizes how important Leo's job is, kind of something that we've been talking about the last few episodes with this divorce plot. And the two of them make up, uh, the two of them being Leo and Mallory, and they decide to go out to dessert and invite Sam. Uh, and when they go to invite Sam, we find that he is now uh, head over heels obsessed with this birthday message project. Uh, as a product of kind of losing some of his uh, verve with writing other speeches in the earlier parts of the episode. And 
and probably one of my favorite moments that really had me laughing very loudly in my home. Uh, we see at the very end that Toby is now helping Sam with this birthday message for one of the assistant transportation secretaries, uh, and they are both zealously trying to write this as best they can. So that's what we're looking at for season one, episode eight, titled Enemies. Yeah, no, that's a, 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 a great summary, and this one was closer to five minutes, so you're, 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 eventually you'll achieve a two-minute summary, maybe. Um, I'm working my way there. I'm working my way there. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that was a great summary. I think that um, you, you are right that, like, the, the Sam and Mallory storyline is, like, by far the most capturing and engaging storyline, even though, like, it has, you know, very little, um, you know, impact on anything at all, right? I mean, that sort of... The joke, right, is that Sam spends the majority of his time in this episode writing, you know, he, 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 he to clarify, it's a birthday message, not a birthday card. Uh, Sam, Sam's very passionate about that. Um, but I think that, you know, you know, that it's like, it's like very unimportant, right, in, in, in that regard. But it's it's by far the most, most engaging, right? I think that, you know, you see that oftentimes there is um, an, an aspect to, um to, to these episodes, right, where the the interpersonal is sometimes more engaging than the the you know national political story, uh, but w w w we can jump into to uh, what is what is what is I think you're right you're accurate in saying that the the, the A storyline is the, the 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 banking bill and we see really I think what the theme of, of this episode is right that you know what we see here right is that the president. Uh, you know, who's presiding over a divided government, right? You know, we don't really know necessarily the makeup of of the of Congress, but we know for sure that there is a Republican-controlled House, and so with a, you know the president overseeing a, a divided government, that the compromise and the passing of legislation becomes very difficult, right? We saw this with the uh, gun gun control bill, right, that was sort of seen as a, a compromise and was unliked by a lot of people. And we see it here with this banking bill, right, that it is was seen as sort of impossible. And they, they end up, you know, finally, finally getting this bill passed. And, you know, everybody's very excited about it. But then, you know, sort of the other shoe drops, right, that they were able to get a, a, uh, a, that they were able to get this this land use rider attached to it, right? That allows for, you know, mining of this, right? And it sort of you know shows the issues with the 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 process that these bills get amended by, right? Because any amendment passes with a majority vote, even if those people end up voting against the bill, right? So you you sort of see this scenario, right, where people who are going to ultimately vote against this bill because they, you know, are opposed to the banking regulations or are in bed with the banking lobby or whatever, but they're allowed to vote and be part of the majority that gets a land use rider attached, right? And so, you know, it's emblematic, I think, of a way that the system is, is, is a little bit screwed up here. And, you know, it definitely seems like it is a way for these people to attach something to make the president's win that he has that, you know, everybody sort of agrees is a win to make it a lot less of a win. And, you know, that can be a frustrating thing that is, um, you know, attached here. No, definitely. We're, we're back to the creation of the sausage here when we look at what happens on the Hill. And 
Uh, we see pretty much every in and out possible and every, uh, you know, back back seat or not back seat, but back road dealings that end up happening. Toby's going out to lunch with one of the guys that ends up adding the land use rider and and I don't know. It's just a big mess. That's kind of the takeaway that I that I have once again gotten from the West Wing. Right, right, right. Absolutely right. And that you know we see that that um, that the, the Toby goes out to lunch with Crane. Um, I really liked the the joke where Toby says he's going to lunch with Crane, and they go win. And Toby goes, I don't know, lunchtime. I thought that, that was a great um, a great little joke there. But yeah, that the, the Toby goes out to lunch with Crane, and Crane tells him like. Yeah, don't worry, it's gonna pass. But what Crane's, you know, not telling him is, oh, hey, we've attached this, you know, we've attached this, this land use writer that you know you're, you're gonna hate, right? But you know, it seems like the, um, you know, that the, the Republicans believe, right, that the president's gonna pass the bill anyways, right? And so they're trying to get, you know, their own win out of this, right? It's a win for you know the mining companies, and it's you know a, a shot against the the environmentalists, right, and especially, you know, you could imagine that the president signing this bill is going to make people that really care about the environment a lot less likely to vote for the president, right, even if, you know, objectively, right, that the president's still a better choice on those issues. And so, you know, it's it's a pretty difficult political situation that the president finds himself in, right, and you can tell that the Republicans think that he, he, you know, the, the Republicans think there's no way he's going to veto his own bill, right? And so that, you know, gets gets into this this weird weird scenario, right, where the president spent and his team has spent, you know, months presumably negotiating this bill that you know was sort of seen as impossible. They get it done, and then, you know, the Republicans are almost sort of daring him, like, you know, yeah, veto your bill, right? Waste three months of negotiations, right? Waste all this goodwill, right? Waste all this political power that you accomplished. And, you know, I think that it really, you know, really sets up an interesting interesting conundrum, right? Where you have, you know, Josh and Toby arguing on one side and, and Sam and Mandy arguing largely on the, on the, on the opposite side of the argument. Right, and we see through the episode this uh, this argument go from just like I don't know, like small small potatoes to a pretty intense back and forth, particularly between Josh and Mandy. I thought it was really fun that they set it up to have these teams in the beginning of the episode with Josh and Toby and Sam and Mandy, and then uh, Josh and Mandy lose their respective lieutenants in this fight uh, to speech writing <laughs> and the difficulties therein uh, with with both of them going off to work on this birthday message. Uh, but it's very clear that the West Wing is divided on this topic. And I can understand where both sides are coming from. I do think it's really interesting how, again, this is perhaps one of the more telling things about the age of this series, where the people in the West Wing are so ready to throw out the environment. They're so ready to say, oh, well, it's just strip mining in Montana. Who cares? They kind of throw that out. Uh, for the sake of this bill, which honestly, again, there's no there's no easy thing to to throw out in in these scenarios. Uh, but I think it's a bit telling that this happened, you know, 24, 25 years ago now that they can so flippantly say that this this environmental concern does not matter to them. Yeah, no, it definitely shows that the the the, the environmental concern is, is is not the top of of mind, right? And even you know when when we get to, you know, 
the Mandy and and Josh argument, right? That like Josh isn't even sort of making an argument in favor of, of the environment or in favor of we need to, you know, court voters that really care about the environment, right? Like like e- even Josh, who's you know saying, hey, we got to veto this bill, he isn't saying it for sort of the reasons you might expect, right? He's saying it, you know, you know, I mean, the, the argument that, that Josh and Mandy have, right, is just sort of a difference of of philosophy in terms of you know what's the best way to sort of show political power right that the josh comes at it and says like no you know we need to unambiguously win this fight we need to you know come here we need to be able to declare victory whereas you know mandy makes the point that you know when the best you can do is have a tie you depart the field and declare victory right that that is that's the perspective that the, the mandy comes at this from and I think that it's, it's, it's an interesting setup because it, it ties in, I think, pretty well to the um, to the, the dynamic we've seen between Josh and Mandy, right, is that they're very similar in a lot of ways in terms of they are very, you know, dedicated to win. They're both very smart. They're both very engaged in here. But the conflict and, you know, you, you know what, what you can imagine why they didn't work out as a couple and why they you know, are sort of always fighting is that they really have very different perspectives on political power and how to win long term on a, on a political movement, right? And especially that you get the idea that both of them are sort of new to, to you know, these high positions of power. And so they're both sort of untested a little bit in, in the way that they're attempting to get their... Um, you know, in the, trying to test their theory of their case, right? And that, and that, you know, Mandy seems to be, at least in my my perception of this, a little bit more of the of the tr- traditional mindset of it, right? Of you know, you need to just take whatever wins you can get, and then you know, go into the spin room and 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 you know, pull a win out of there. Whereas Josh, you know, says like, no, we can win, you know, big time, right? And he spends you know this entire episode, you know, sort of trying to prove the theory of the case, right, that they can sort of, you know, have their cake and eat it too, right, which, you know, ultimately is is successful at the end of the day. And though their uh, respective opinions on how to win in these battles on the hill might have made them less than successful in a relationship, I think that that's exactly why both of them are so valuable in the West Wing. Having these completely different perspectives is what allows the West Wing to have uh, these big debates, and it's to the benefit of President Bartlett and the administration as a whole to have these two very intelligent people arguing very different points so that, you know, in the end, the strongest point is almost certainly the one that's going to win. Right, and, right, and, you know, and they get, like we saw that the president, you know, went with Mandy's decision, you know, in, in, in episode seven, you know, to, 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 to bring in the, um, the FBI uh, negotiator. And then, you know, this time the president, you know, it, it seems to be leaning towards Josh's decision. And obviously Josh comes up with sort of the, you know, silver bullet at the end. And so, you know, yeah, you see that it's, you know, that's sort of, you know, emblematic of, I think, the role of the president, right? The president's role is to you know, be a filter through all, where where all these people can can come with their ideas, right? You know, to, to 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 reference, you know, the Harry Truman sign again, right? That I have here on my desk, right? That you know, the buck stops here, right? That the the role the role of the president is to be the sort of final guy that sort of you know 
arbitrates that, right? And so the fact that, you know, you have these people who are able to, you know, clearly articulate two very different ideas on some of these topics, right? That it allows the president to understand both of these um, points of view, I guess, is the simplest way to put it. Definitely. He's definitely an arbitrator in that regard. And just kind of uh, taking in all this information. And I don't know, I feel like he's just like a, a, a scale to balance. And the result is what ends up going out to the rest of the country. Yeah. Um, and then we get, you know, just to, to sort of the, the, the final part of this, right, is that, you know, throughout the entire episode, we've, we've, gotten you know a little bit of a dive into the um the the, the interesting mind of the president to to, to you know put, put it mildly but you know the president um is uh, spending this entire episode uh, showing off of his um his wonderful national park knowledge right you know we got a little bit of this when they were playing playing poker in and in, in episode six but we get this now right where the president uh, knows knows lots of facts, lots of trivia, and he is delighted to to share it with people, and especially delighted on the fact that since he is the president, people are you know required to listen to him. Um, I thought the, the the cold open was was quite quite great with 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 him and Josh, where Josh is you know trying trying very hard to to get get out of the conversation, and he goes. Oh, is it is it the work done, Mr. President? And he goes, Yeah, but this is this is fun, <laughs> you know. And <laughs> and Josh is like, Well, I can't go until you you let me go. And the President's like, Yeah, I know you can't you can't leave. You're not allowed to leave. And it's like, Oh, okay, um, you know. And then and then, and then later we also get the president. Um, we get the president uh, telling tell, telling Charlie about all the national parks uh, when when. When when Josh comes in and Charlie, you know, uses that as an excuse to to to, to escape and run away, so I, I thought that that was quite fun, also. Um, but yeah, the, the 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 twist that 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 Josh finds is that, you know, the president is entitled to. I mean, actually, this is a this is a, a IMDb goof of the episode here that the president is allowed to make a national monument, not a national park. National parks do require an act of Congress, but the. The, the idea is the same, right? The president is allowed to, um, you know, set aside land to be federally protected, which would supersede the land use rider and allow for the Big Sky National Preserve to be a national monument and therefore protected from the mining. And so, you know, Josh sort of gets the last laugh here, right? That, that the bill can pass with the land use amendment, but... The Lanius Amendment doesn't matter because Big Sky Preserve is going to ultimately be protected. Uh, I, I, I I do like the point that, like, again, we, you know, we've proved that Josh is, is not doing this because he cares about the environment, right? That that, the, that he goes, I'm sure they could find a bird or something that, that, the, that the, you know, country has a right to go visit. <laughs> like, he doesn't even know, like, what national parks are for even. Like, that's how disconnected he is. But I thought, I think it was, it was, it was uh, quite, quite fun there. No, I really did like the line at the very beginning. You're quite a nerd, Mr. President. I think that kind of encapsulates the entire arc of uh, the president's knowledge on the subject that ended up inspiring Josh in the end. Yeah, no, for sure, right? That that that, that the, the president is, you know, has sort of these, you know, special interests that he has, right? And and one of them is able to come and be like the cavalry at the end of the episode, right? Running in to, 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 to save the day. Um, I do also like uh, the scene that, um, you know, Josh realizes the president can use the 
can use the Antiquities Act um, because uh, Donna is telling them that the computers are antiquated and that's why they can't print out his his documents he's asking for. So it's just you know, you know, Josh is out here pl playing word association to to you know solve the problems of the episode, which I think is. Is, is is quite funny i think it's also funny where he says like that's it and donna's looking at him like what are you talking about like i'm just complaining about the computers like you know <laughs> what's going on no i thought that moment was particularly funny considering the president was talking about national parks to him ad nauseum the entire time and yet for some reason it was the computer line from donna that actually tipped him off yeah no no and again it it, it you know shows again sort of how valuable Donna is to Josh, right? And how, you know, what, why they work so well together, right? In a way that it's like, she says something that, you know, doesn't mean anything to anybody, right? Doesn't even mean anything to her, right? But it's all of a sudden, that's the key that unlocks, you know, you know, all the thinking that Josh has been doing all day, right? And that that, you know, you know, ties in to the fact, right? That, you know, Donna always knows exactly what Josh is thinking. You know, she's always waiting outside his office for when he, you know, shouts her name and she knows what he's asking for, right? It's like, you know, here she knows what he's asking for, even when she doesn't know that she knows what he's asking for, right? Which I think is, you know, a very, a, a very fascinating twist, twist to that character and that relationship that they have. All right. And then we have the, um, the, 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 the little B storyline, like you said here, right? Is that, um, the episode starts with, um, the uh, cabinet meeting, um, which they, they they say is only the third cabinet meeting, um, I guess for some reason that is sort of never explained. President Bartlett seems to be opposed to to cabinet meetings, and in fact, he is even he's even late to this cabinet meeting. And so, um, Vice President Hoynes starts it out, and he, you know, gives sort of a very, you know, boring boilerplate introduction where he says, the first thing we need to do is figure out how to work with Congress, which is sort of an, an innocuous thing. But then the president comes in and he asks, um, he asks Mildred, the, the lady who is uh, taking minutes for the meeting uh, to sort of read back what the vice president has said. And the president sort of uses this as an example to sort of, um, you know, get on the vice president's case and to sort of, you know, make fun of him a little bit for not saying that the number one thing they should be doing is, you know, fighting for the American people or whatever. And so it, you know, ends up being, being sort of a weird scene. And then that sort of sets up the controversy for the rest of the episode, right? That the story gets out that the president is, you know, making fun of the vice president or sort of, you know, razzing him a little bit in the cabinet meeting and that, you know, again, ties into the fact that, you know, everybody in the press sort of knows that they don't have the best relationship. And so this is sort of another piece of evidence in that, in that story, I guess. Right. We see uh, this product of what has already been an extensive rumor situation. And we've learned this episode, part of the reason why this is such a long running rumor, uh, and that is because uh, President Bartlett had basically wiped the floor with Hoynes during the primaries. And so their relationship was perhaps doomed from the very beginning because they were opposed to each other uh, before the election. And so I, I like that we learned a little bit more about it. And I like that in the same episode, we're seeing the product of that. And we're seeing this tension that has, you know, 
uh, been building up for for probably close to a year now, if not more. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, it's it's it, 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 it's definitely more than a year, right? Because you know the the they're already you know a year and a bit into the into the presidency, right? And this relationship goes back, you know, to, to the campaign and then even back to, to the primary campaign, right, where they were where they were opponents, right? And you see and again this ties in a little bit back to, you know, differences between 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 the nineties and today that we are, you know, pointing out in this episode, right? That, you know, the Republican Party of the or the Democratic Party of the of the nineties, excuse me, um, you know, has a very large ideological difference, right? And, you know, the president represents the the ideologically liberal you know, Northeast, you know, Northwest, Midwest base of the party and Hoynes, you know, he's from Texas, right? He represents the more ideologically conservative, you know, like he points out in this episode, right? That he was able to be, you know, deliver a lot of votes to the president in the South. You know, I believe they point, they say that the president won Texas, the president won Georgia. You know, he does that, you know, largely by these sort of Southern, more, more conservative Democrats. And that, you know, that that's an issue, right? That when you have, a party that is so ideologically diverse and ultimately ideologically divided that these conflicts exist, right? And that, you know, Hoynes, you know, was viewed as the, you know, as the front runner and he ends up, you know, losing to, 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 to Bartlett and, but they, but they need to work together to, to defeat the Republican, right? And so that, you know, creates a relationship that is not, you know, not the most healthy relationship, right? right off the jump right and that that you know continues to be a relationship that faces faces problems right and that you know it's because they they don't get along and they never really have right and that relationship sort of only gets more contentious as it's not addressed i think and it's something it's a strange choice or it's a strange system to have in place that's been in place for the entirety of the history of our country. But correct me if I'm wrong, in the very beginning, uh, when we were having our very first presidents, the vice president was not just somebody that the, you know, the president had beat in the primary, but somebody that the president had beat in the general election. Uh, and that, you know, there's an even larger ideological gap between the two. So it's very clear that this is a system that that creates tension. And in theory, that tension perhaps is is intended to make the you know the country run smoother because you're bringing together both sides within the white house but at least in the day-to-day -day experiences of the people working in the white house it's going to create some pretty intense clashes yeah well so, so two two things first of all um you're you're you're, you're sort of right here so it used to be back before the 12th amendment was passed that presidential electors had two votes that they would cast and then the winner would get president and the second place would get vice president and so in theory right if all the people voted for the same two people then they would finish first and second um but because there they didn't want there to be ties oftentimes people would switch who they voted their second vote for and so that is how we ended up with um with yes, with with President John Adams, who as vice president was Thomas Jefferson, who was his main ideological uh, opponent there, and so that was, you know, eventually fixed by the passage of the Twelfth Amendment, where the presidential electors 
get one vote for president and one vote for vice president as opposed to two votes where the winner and second place are president and vice president respectively but but yeah no your 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 point is correct right is that the the system is oftentimes set up to incentivize compromise candidates right and the presidents and vice presidents that are not ideologically 100% simpatico and again in theory we've seen how that allows for them to sort of compromise in some ways, right? Like the, the the gun control legislation gets passed because Hoyne's there to sort of put his muscle behind it, right? As a, you know, more conservative, you know, rural, um, you know, member of the Democratic Party. Whereas, you know, these guys that wouldn't listen to, to Bartlett or wouldn't listen to any of Bartlett's staff. But, you know, where it ties in and the sort of, the, what the point of this B episode is, right? Is that the issue comes back to what we've been talking about all season right is that optics are oftentimes more important than policy outcomes right and the optics of a president and vice president that don't get along are potentially disastrous for this administration right that the you know white house and chaos stories that you could see you know the the you know quote unquote democrats in disarray storyline the media the media people love to write you know like that could kill the president's political agenda right and so you know, that becomes the issue, right, is not really trying to get the president and Hoynes to get along, but to get the media to not, you know, realize how much they don't get along, right? That sort of is the objective of the episode here. Absolutely, which ties once again into something that we've been talking about multiple times uh, through the course of this podcast, and that is that the appearance of these things is at times more important than the actual, uh, the actual reality of it. And so we see with these two, this you know, if they could just shut up and, you know, not talk about it and the press never heard about it, it wouldn't matter how much they fought. But because they're doing these things in a public setting uh, and, and because these things are being leaked to the press, that's when the issues actually uh, end up bubbling up. Yeah, no, no, I, I, absolutely. Um, so then, then we get um, I, I thought that there that there were a, a, a couple of, of, of really good scenes here where um we see the uh, the vice president talking to like a small group of, of you know, first it's reporters before Danny comes to talk to him. And then later he's talking to, you know, a sort of un, undisclosed group of people that are that are in the in, in the meal room there. And I thought that both of these scenes where he's just talking to these small groups show, you know, what sort of a great, you know, retail politician that the vice president is, I think, you know, right. That he's telling these stories in an engaging way and he's getting these people to laugh. And I thought that it's just a good way to sort of, you know, show and not tell, right, that, you know, some of the differences between the president and the vice president, right? The vice president is, you know, obviously, you know, yeah, he's more he's more conservative. He's a Southern Democrat, but also that he's much more of the sort of traditional politician in terms of the, you know, who would you like to have beer with and who, you know, versus the president is, you know, this, you know, weird guy that, you know, wants to talk for two hours about national parks, right? And I think that that, you know, was a was a fun a fun setup of the, the sort of differences between the two of them that we see in this episode. I completely agree. I think one of the strengths of the uh, national park storyline is how much it shows off uh, the differences, like you're saying, between their talking styles. Coins always has a little story, a little you know joke, something to tell people about. Uh, whereas the president, as we've discussed many times will talk your ear off about something that you are actively saying you don't want to hear. Right. Um, 
But I also, I made a note of this. I think there's another difference that you can see in these two processes, and that is that uh, whether or not this is the reality, right? When when Hoynes is talking, his his gaggle, his little uh, pod of uh, staffers is always essentially like off to the side. They're always like 10 to 15 feet away from him when he's talking to the press, when he's talking to this group. And <clears throat> I, it, most importantly, when he goes to leave, he always says, let's go. And they all follow him along like a little, you know, herd of sheep. Like, like they're very well trained to be away from him and then to follow him as soon as he goes. Whereas I feel like, uh, and, and I might be reading too much into the blocking here, uh, President Bartlett's staffers are always kind of around him. They always seem to be with him in the conversation at the table with him and whoever he's talking to. And and however that's read, whether that's a weakness or a strength, it did seem like another difference between the two. Well, in interesting here. I'm going to I'm going to put a little spoiler for 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 the rest of season 1 here, but I think you make an interesting point, right? Is because we will eventually learn that Josh worked for Hoynes before he worked for Bartlett, right? And that the reason that he ultimately leaves and decides to, to work for the Bartlett campaign is because he doesn't think that Hoynes listened to him enough, right? That, um, you know, there's a scene, I think it's in, it's in I don't know, two or three episodes where, um, where, where, where Vice President Hoynes says, hey, if I would have listened to you, do you ever think, or do you ever think that if I would have listened to you, that I would be president right now? And Josh says, like, oh no, I know that if you would have listened to me, like you would have been president, right? And so I think that it definitely, you know, is interesting, right? Is that you know Bartlett fails and succeeds because you know he's built a team that he you know sort of trusts inherently, right? And that you know Hoynes fails and succeeds because he's sort of his own man, right? I think that that's an interesting thing that you noticed that I, that I didn't notice, but I think it really does tie into the, in, 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 into the Hoynes character that we see, you know, throughout the, throughout his run on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think that we see Bartlett as a group dynamic president and we see Hoynes as what would have been a standalone president, uh, which is ironic considering he markets himself as the kind of guy that you'd grab a beer with. When in reality, as soon as you're past the beer, he doesn't want to talk to you. Yeah, right. You know, and that, and that people are sort of only useful to the vice president insofar as they can sort of move him along, right? You know, the fact that he, you know, is going to bring you in, he's going to tell you a joke, you're going to feel like, you know, a million bucks, and then, you know, you'll, you know, and then you'll you walk out the door and he, he, he forgets your name, right? You know, um, you know, and, 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 and again, I think that that's sort of, you know, you know, to sort of tie these people into, you know, real life political characters right that's sort of what, what what people say about bill clinton right that you know you talk to him and you know you feel like you know you feel like amazing and you're like wow that was the best conversation i ever had right and then he you know has no idea who you are you know five minutes later right and i think that that's a little bit a little bit what you see with hoynes right that he's in there he's joking he's making all these comments and then you know he leaves and you know you're like wow that was amazing and he you know that was that's just, that's just another you know Average Tuesday for 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 Hoynes, right? Um, I also think that the story that he told uh, tell the reporters about the internet stocks is it just me or did that story like not make any sense? Because the story that he tells is that um, that there was a, an internet rumor about a stock, and so it was selling, it was trading well, and then the 
the rumor is revealed to be false and so the stock reverts to its original price and somehow this is supposed to be like a good story about the internet did this story make any sense to you mason because it didn't make any sense to me listening to it i think i actually went back and tried to listen to it a second time because i was really struggling to follow along because as you say the moral of the story that he presents is that the internet is not a fad but the way that he gets to that conclusion is by pointing out that you know rumors which can be spread on the internet or not can change the price of a stock dramatically but it didn't even and change the price the, because at the end of the day the price was the same so it's like what changes here other than the, the stock was traded a bunch like so what so a bunch of like you know stockbrokers made like a bunch of money on commissions like who cares right i'm trying to imagine the course of the stock exchange day in which i'm imagining that at the beginning there was a surge of trades for the stock during the rumor and then at the end there's a bunch of exchanges when the rumor was concluded and so some people made a lot of money some people probably lost a lot of money um but we don't meet those people it doesn't matter and again the conclusion that he draws is a strange one considering i don't understand how the internet specifically is the crux of this process when things like this have been happening since the since the stock exchange opened yeah it was, it was a very weird story um, you know, and everybody, everybody in in the universe seems to seems to get it, but I, I did not get it. I was like, I was like, what is this story? Like, <laughs> it makes no sense to me. You know, yeah, he says this just in the internet, it's not a fad, and it's like I feel like even if it, the internet being a fad, like, sort of makes even more sense. Like, if the internet was a fad, like, it'd be like, oh yeah, like the only thing you can get on the internet is like rumors and lies that like you know mess up the stock market for a day. Like that seems to be the moral that I would take away from this story. Is that? But you know, again, who who knows? I'm I'm not the vice president, so you know, maybe maybe he's smarter than I am on, you know, whether the internet's a fad or not. Also, you know, again, another thing that sort of dates this show, right? Them talking about, you know, oh, the internet's a fad, you know, huh, yeah, you know, not something that anybody would be uh, accused of of saying uh, in in the year of our Lord, uh, 2024. Absolutely, I was about to emphasize that as well. I think that pretty much the entire episode, you know. Uh, could have gone under the radar in terms of how old it was. Even the nature stuff, really, you know, these are these are politicians. I'm not necessarily betting on them, uh, you know, being too passionate about nature. But that one line is what tells me that this is, you know, a quarter of a century old and that he's suggesting that there are still people debating whether or not the Internet is going to stick around. Yeah. Um. But then, then after after he makes his, you know, tells his weird internet story, um, then Danny Danny comes to try to talk to him, and Danny is trying to get him to uh, confirm his story that he has about what happened at the cabinet meeting. You know, Danny is is uh, being being very unsubtle here. He goes, "Anything you want to talk about about the cabinet meeting?" And Vice President's like, "No, can't think of anything I want to talk about." Danny's like, "You sure? Like, <laughs> nothing you want to talk about? Like, you know, I'm here. I'll, I'll write anything you tell me." <laughs> and he's like, "No, no, Danny. Like, nothing I want to talk about." Um, and again, you know, you you you, you see that, that this ties in right that you know you know earlier when, um, when when CJ you know covered for the vice president right the vice president here is covering covering for the president right that it shows that. You know, as much as these people might not personally like each other, they might not personally get along, right? That they are unified in terms of their goal for what they are trying to 
accomplish and they realize that, you know, if this story gets out, it's bad news for all of us. And we are, you know, sort of inexplicably linked, right? And that the vice president has gone out of his way, you know, we saw to, 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 to link himself with the president, right? You know, by, by you know, making his comments, you know, and, and making it known, right, that, that, you know, he and Leo, you know, both are alcoholics, sort of mutually assured destruction in that regard, if that comes out, right? And they, the idea that comes to that, right, that the vice president knows that his political future, right, you know, he points out he's 15 years younger than the president, you know, his hope is to be the next president, right, or at least the next Democratic president. And so because of that, you know, he needs to have a successful administration as, as vice president. And so he's not going to let it be known how much he dislikes the president, even if he, you know, quite dislikes him and quite doesn't get along with him. Right. A story like this would be drilling holes in, a, in the hull of a boat that you're both passengers in. They realize that they need each other to survive and i think that it's i i think that this is an interesting shift in hoins that we've seen over the last maybe episode or two i think we would have maybe seen a different reaction from hoins uh just a couple weeks ago when he was a little bit more ready to you know jump at the president publicly and so uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm intrigued by his changes, his choices again. I think that this speaks to his plans, like you said, to become the next president. And he's now starting to play his cards a little bit closer to his chest uh, for that for that intent alone. Right, right, and, and you know, you know, sort of recognizing right that you know his success hinges pretty much one-to-one -one on the success of, you know, the administration as a whole, right? You know, you see throughout American history, right? The, the vice presidents that get elected president are all get elected basically off of the goodwill of the president they served under, right? Whether it's Nixon getting elected off of Eisenhower's goodwill or, um, you know, Bush Sr. getting elected off of the goodwill of Reagan or, you know, even the sort of most recent example, right, that, you know, Biden getting elected largely off of the goodwill of Obama, right, and sort of these people that, you know, wish they could have voted for Obama a third time, right, and so, you know, the recognition that as much as you like or dislike, agree or disagree with President Bartlett, right, your path to success as a vice president is people liking the president you serve under and wishing they could vote for them a third time. I think it's very funny that you mentioned uh, people wishing they could vote for Obama a third time as we discuss a TV show uh, starring Bradley Whitford. Uh, of course, he stars later in uh, the film Get Out by Jordan Peele, where he says exactly that. Yes. No, I, 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 I that was intentional, yes. Um, I see. Well, then I thought it was a good intentional joke, man. Uh, thank you. Um you know, right, but, but, but I think that that's important, right, and you see that the vice president is sort of changing, you know, as it comes up, right, you know, you know, the the midterm elections are fast approaching, right, you know, how how the White House does in these midterms, how the Democrats do in these midterms, it's going to have a big impact on Bartlett going into, into the reelect, right, and, you know, whether he gets reelected or not, you know, that's going to be probably the number one factor that determines whether or not Hoynes has any political future in this party, right? You know, you saw, you know, to, to, to go back to history a little bit later, right? That, you know, 
Jimmy Carter loses re-election to Ronald Reagan, and that pretty much kills Walter Mondale's political career as well, right? Uh, Carter's vice president. And, you know, when um, when uh, George Bush Sr. loses re-election, you know, that kills Dan Quayle's political career, right? And so, you know, if you are Hoynes, you realize, like, the Bartlett's political career, right, which is, you know, just, just to re-elect at this point, right? It's like, if he fails in that, then that really sets up Hoynes' political career. You know, he's really behind the eight ball at that point, and that, you know, is a um you know thing that you think you need to recognize right and so again back to the perception right it's like Hoynes needs to be perceived as Bartlett's biggest warrior right even if he's obviously anything but that in reality absolutely no I, I think he's playing real safe right now and I think that that is again to emphasize his age is such a big factor in that he's 15 years younger and a failure now would mean something completely different than, you know, if if President Bartlett wasn't reelected, where President Bartlett is, you know, already kind of at an age where maybe he's ready to retire out of politics. Uh, if this doesn't work out, he uh, Hoynes is at the, you know, at the peak of his his political career. And this is really a make or break moment for him, more so than it is for perhaps any other uh, person on the show. Yeah, no, absolutely, right? Because even all of the people, you know, obviously, you know, Josh and Sam are at the start of their career, but it's a lot, you know, their name's not on the ballot, right? It's a lot easier for them to recover from this, right? And for people to realize, like, you know, hey, you know, they've learned from their mistakes so we can, you know, bring them in or we can, you know, whatever, right? Versus, yeah, Hoyne's name is on the ballot, right? If they lose re-election, it's going to, you know, there's going to be a loss next to Hoyne's name on the, you know, you know, record of his electoral history, right? And that that's difficult to overcome and, you know, di you know, very d difficult to overcome, especially as, you know, somebody who, you know, has sort of tied their political fortunes to, 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 to somebody else largely, right? Because again, the vice president is not the most important position and not the most powerful position, but, it's sort of perceived as, as as powerful, right? It's perceived as a big deal, and so you know you're sort of you know hitching your hitching your wagon to a horse that you're not really fully in control of, and so you need to do anything you can to make that horse you know go where you want it to go. No, it's very much the uh, scorpion and the frog, I suppose that they uh, they are in this together at the risk of both of their lives. Right, and you know, yeah, and again, like you said, Hoynes' life. A lot, worth a lot more to him than the president's life necessarily, right? The president, you know, could go retire to his farm in New Hampshire and he'd be perfectly happy for the rest of his life, right? But Hoynes, you know, probably is not at a point in his career where he could retire even if he wanted to, right? And he definitely seems like a guy who, you know, wants to be involved, wants to, you know, be involved, you know, in, 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 in this way that it's like, you know, what can he do if he's sort of seen as this, you know, loser candidate that doesn't have a future in electoral politics um but then you know you know ultimately you know you know cj goes and confronts the vice president you know and he gets defensive because he sort of makes the point that, that we've been making right not in as many words as we've been making but he makes the point to cj that he's like what incentive do i have to make the president look stupid right like you know and and 
CG ultimately, you know, leaves that, you know, realizing like, oh, you know, I, I was wrong about that, right? You know, and, and she goes to Danny and she's like, you know, I think the horns didn't leak. And I, and now I'm like, now I'm like mad because, you know, like I went to horns and I pissed him off by sort of accusing him of, of being the leaker, right? Even though she doesn't, you know, doesn't say that, you know, in so many words, right? But that there's, she, she, she definitely implies that, right? And that that, you know, sets up, again, you know, more of, more of the, tension between them right you know you know the the vice president you know says like you know no matter what you think about me personally remember when you talk to me you're addressing the office of the vice president right you know hinting at you know to to you know you know not not, not to give away too many spoilers in this episode right but there is a contentious personal relationship between cj and the vice president right that is not helped by her sort of coming and almost accusing him of being the leaker Right. I think that this was a definite misstep for CJ, whether or not it was intentional, right? Like, it, it, it was her going forward and implying an accusation to someone that already has a contentious relationship with the with the administration as a whole, uh, if not her herself. So, I don't know. It, it, it was a rough thing to watch because, obviously, CJ is just trying to do her due diligence. But I think a little bit more prep work on her part, maybe a little bit more further interrogation with Danny might have made that interaction go a little bit more smoothly and not end up with Hoynes, you know, essentially berating her for this, this wayward uh, accusation. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately, um, you know, you know, CJ goes to, to Danny later and, you know, she says, you know, well, okay, like you pointed out, right, that the Mandy's idea is, hey, you know, why don't you give Danny an interview with the president on the record in exchange for him, you know, not releasing this story, which again, you know, wouldn't be a great, the best source story, right? You know, Danny's paper probably wouldn't even like it, right? You know, with a denial from the vice president in there, but still a story that's not going to be fun for the White House. And so it sort of becomes a win-win, right? That Danny gets a story that is going to be excellently sourced and the White House gets a story that would be embarrassing to them to sort of go away. So it's sort of, you know, find a way for them, for them, them, them both to get a win there. And so, you know, when, when CJ is going to Danny, she ultimately realizes the, um, that the person who um, gave the reveal and, and, and gave the leak to the press wasn't any of the cabinet members and it wasn't any of the sort of White House staff or the cabinet member staff, but it was um, the, the like secretary there who was uh, taking minutes for the meeting. Uh, her, she's, her, she's, her, her, she's named as Mildred. And again, to, to uh, give, give a shout out to to my favorite person in the world, Matt Stewart, uh, just to point out, uh, she is black. Just, you know, we have to point that out every time a black character shows up on this show. Um, you know, right. And I, and I think that that's this interesting reveal, right? That everybody is spending the entire episode thinking that it's, you know, that there's a room full of, you know, some of the most powerful people in the world, right? But that the person who's actually, you know, telling the story is, you know, probably the least powerful person in that whole room, right? Somebody that has no influence on the policy no influence on what's going on right she's just there to you know keep a log of what happened in this meeting right but that she 
you know, ultimately has the power to sort of ruin everybody's day by by going to Danny with uh, with a, a embarrassing story. Right, and I have to wonder exactly how that leak process happened because I would almost almost wonder if it was simply, you know, she was telling her friend about wow, this crazy thing happened. The president was talking directly to me and was using me to make fun of the vice president. And and somehow that evolved into a leak. Or if it was like a more direct leak, like she, it happened, she immediately was like, I got to go tell, you know, Danny about this because this is crazy. But either way, I mean, uh, it's it's nice to see Danny defend her because it's very, that's very easily a thing that could have gotten somebody fired and sent away from you know the the hill dc in general like that was such a breach of of privacy for these people that demand privacy on such a high level yeah no no and and and, and again the fact that you know i think you know you do make a point right that it's like it does seem that this person that she's mildred she's just friends with danny right the fact and that that is evidenced by the fact that danny is is willing to sort of go all out to say like hey this deal that I'm going to make, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, exchange the story that I do. I'm going to, you know, phase that out and instead do this interview for the president. But that deal only, only stands as long as Mildred keeps her job, right? That if she gets fired, I'm going to write the story of, you know, why she gets fired, which is going to be, you know, the same story basically of the president yelling at the vice president, but now even worse, right? Because there's a, you know, sympathetic face of somebody who lost their job right and so yeah D- danny is danny is coming in here and he's saying like hey i want to you know make sure that you know she's not punished for for what's going on here and all in all i mean it's just like a weird scenario for for cj and for danny i think it was kind of interesting to see how cj figured out who the leak was because she starts saying, oh, well, maybe it was one of the cabinet members. And Danny immediately goes, they weren't the only people in the room. Uh, but almost like it almost seemed like he regretted saying that because then, of course, CJ immediately knows who who it must be. It must be Mildred because she's the only other person present. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it was an interesting back and forth between the two of them. And I'm glad that Danny protected Mildred. But man, like that's such a such a big risk for Mildred to take, like in in this scenario you'd think that that would be you know that that wouldn't happen after what i can only assume is a very rigorous training process yeah no it, it definitely you know brings some questions into the personnel office that's hiring mildred right like how how, how that kind of you know slipped through the cracks but uh you know mildred not a recurring character so we do not get any any uh, any further um understanding of of, of the mildred character and her motivations here. Um, I, 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 I do think that the the deal that uh, CJ and Danny make is, is quite interesting, right? Because like I said, I do think it ends up being really a win-win for both of the both of the parties here, right? Because Danny has a story that's, you know, even though it's gonna be annoying to the White House, right? It's not gonna be a great story because it's gonna feature, you know, the president and the vice president saying this did not happen, right? Like, you know, so so it's it's not, not the best story, right? So he sort of changes that out for like a big story or, you know, a, an interview with the president, right? An exclusive interview. And then, you know, the White House gets an annoying story to go away. And so 
you know, it, it is interesting, right, that the relationship they have with the press, because it's oftentimes, you know, quite, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Transactional. Well, well, I was going to say it's often quite like hostile, right? That they're often mm. on opposite sides, but this is an example of when it becomes transactional, right? When they can say, hey, we found a way for us both to leave today, you know, better than we entered today, which is, which is interesting, right? That, you know, that, that, that for all of the, you know, disagreements they might have for all that they might, you know, publicly, you know, have problems with each other, right? Like privately, there's often a time for them both to come to the table and, 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 and make a deal that, you know, maybe goes against their, their stated principles, right? That, you know, if you're a reporter that says it's my job to, you know, speak truth to power, but hey, you know, if they offer me, you know, a better story, I'm going to take it, even though it, you know, means, you know, not, not, not telling the truth that I have, right? And that they're, you know, say, oh, the media is against us, but, you know, we're going to make a deal with them when it allows us to, you know, get something out of it, right? So it sort of points out, I think, a little bit of hypocrisy that I think both sides of the media and political class have in this scenario. Absolutely. And I would, I don't know, I, I, as a journalist and as an American citizen, there is a frustration watching this where obviously, you know, you're watching this and you're thinking, oh, wow, it's so cute that Danny and CJ are, you know, flirting a little bit. And wow, the back and forth between CJ and the press corps is so funny. She's always so witty. But at the same time, like these journalists, in theory, are supposed to be working with with the American citizens in mind and acting as that fourth branch, uh, those watchdogs, right? The to to make sure that the government is functioning the way that they say that they're functioning. And so to see these trades happen, you know, maybe Danny goes and gets a better story and more information from the president with his thirty minutes. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there there is a there is a thought that the American public would have benefited from learning about the tensions between Hoynes and, and President Bartlett. Uh, and that is emphasized by the concern that the administration has for letting that information out. And so obviously, if there's a concern there, then that means that the American people might actually want to know about it. Right. Well, I think that it, that it shows, like you point out, the sort of issue in, in, in general with the, with the C.J. Danny relationship, right, is that you know, they are, you know, again, not, not that they need to like hate each other, right? But that sort of by necessity, their jobs put them in conflict with each other, right? That the press's job should be to get as much information as possible. And the press secretary and the press staff, people that work in the press office, their job is to, you know, filter the information that comes out and that those are, you know, two, two, two separate jobs, right? And the fact that, you know, you see a scenario with Danny and CJ, right? Whether it's if Danny is more willing to not pursue a story because of his relationship with CJ, or if CJ is more willing to tell, you know, like we'll see later, right? Where CJ is more willing to tell Danny things that she wouldn't tell another reporter, right? That it, you know, shows why their relationship is such a conflict of interest that, you know, really they should not be pursuing, but you know, that's, I guess, the, the, the whole storyline there, right? And we see a lot in this episode that Danny is trying to get her to go on a date, right? He's asking her all these questions and throwing, like, will you go on a date with me as, as one of those questions, um, you know? But, but, but again, it shows, like, why that relationship never 
can work, right? No, there's definitely, this is one of the many, many relationships that, uh, I don't know, that the White House and the the duties that uh, these employees have within it uh, disallow, right? Like, in in reality, the relationship between CJ and Danny is always going to be somewhat antagonistic because they're always going to be, you know, at odds with the other person's priorities. And that's actually one of the things that I was really interested in uh, with the Sam and Mallory uh, arc, where we see Leo almost, you know, uh, fighting against the creation of a new relationship uh, that would have the same pitfalls. Yeah, no, absolutely right. And again, it's it's very difficult for any of these people to have relationships, obviously, as we'll, you know, get into a little bit more with the Leo and the the ongoing divorce storyline here, right? But it's like, it becomes a lot, a lot harder and almost impossible and and oftentimes, you know, impossible or or should be impossible when you get to these, when you, when you get to these scenarios where it's somebody that you interact with in a professional capacity, right? Because then you're left with sort of choosing between a personal relationship and a professional relationship. And that's, that's, that's never good, right? I mean, that's why, you know, most companies have, you know, rules that say, hey, you know, you can't, you know, be in a relationship with somebody that you work with, or, you know, they have to be in a different department or whatever, right? You know, because it's difficult. And it's difficult when, you know, when when you're working at, you know, Intel in the, you know, entry level marketing position, right? You know, and imagine how difficult or how much the pitfalls can be when you're, you know, one of the most powerful people in the country, right? Like CJ is, right? And so, you know, that if she's, you know, willing to sacrifice her job for her relationship or she's willing to, you know, whatever, right? That that could be dangerous for the country. Or if she's, you know, sacrificing her relationship for her job and now she's miserable all the time and she's whatever, right? Like that's not going to allow her to be at her best. And so it really sets up an interesting uh, and, and potentially troubling dynamic, right? Which, you, like you point out, Leo is aware of that, right? Because he is, you know, he's, again, again, you know, he's sort of the, the old man of the group, right? He's a, you know, father figure to, to, to a lot of these guys, right? And partly because he's been there, done that, he has this experience, right? He has a family that's, you know, not in the best place right now, right? Because of the fact that he's dedicated his entire life to his job, and he doesn't want to see other people do that, right? Um, and that, you know, ties in, like you said, to the C storyline, which I agree with you is the most fun, the most interesting storyline of this episode, right? Which is the Mallory, Leo, and Sam storyline, um, which, like you said, it starts out that um, we see that Mallory is uh, getting, getting breakfast uh, with, 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 uh, with Leo, and I thought this scene was quite funny uh, when they reveal uh, how expensive uh, the the coffee is at the hotel that, that Leo is living at. I thought that was quite a fun scene, especially uh, you know since we know that uh, that Mallory is a public school teacher and so you know d- does not have uh, pl- plenty of money like uh, like her dad. I thought that was quite fun that she tries to tries to pay for for breakfast because she says she's taking her dad out to breakfast and then leo reveals that a cup of coffee is six dollars and fifty cents and she goes yeah never mind you you can pay for breakfast which in addition to the earlier internet comment is another thing that severely dates this 
episode in the sense that at this point in time, 25 years ago, $6.50 was not only a little bit pricey for hotel coffee, but was so obscenely expensive for coffee uh, that it implied that the rest of the meal was going to be uh, outrageously expensive as well. Uh, when in reality, right, $6.50, maybe not for what I assume is drip coffee from a hotel you know, a hotel kitchen. But regardless, coffee in general might run $6.50 um, yeah, at, at the low end. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, not an absurd price, right? Again, yeah, if you're, if you're thinking about just like a black coffee, maybe a little expensive, but no, but not like comically expensive, right? But that, but it is definitely, you know, you know, played for laughs as comically expensive. Again, you know, a sign that this was a long time ago. Absolutely. No, there's a, I don't know, inflation. We can use inflation to kind of track what, what has happened here. Um, but no, I think that this, uh, right, we, we as we continue on through this process here, uh, the inciting incident of this C plot is not just the breakfast, but that Leo now has two tickets uh, to the Beijing opera that he doesn't need because uh, he managed to talk to his ex-wife about those tickets, uh, but refuses to ask her how she's doing. Yeah, well, and and he and he does does not want to go to the um, does not want to go to to, to 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 the opera, and so is giving the tickets to Mallory. Uh, but but it is kind of funny that she's like, "How do you know Mom doesn't want them?" And he's like, "Well, I talked to her." And she's like, "And you didn't ask her how she was doing when you talked to her?" Which is which is I think you know you know funny and um, you know you know emblematic of um, you know. The difficulties of ending a relationship, right? That, you know, it is it is it is hard to talk about, you know, the important things, right? Maybe easier to talk about, um, you know, opera tickets or whatever. It's uh, I don't know. It's interesting again uh, to to see kind of this post divorce situation where because of the fact that Mallory is here. Uh, and because Leo still cares about his ex-wife to some extent, right, they are still interacting. And they do still have these mutual commitments like the opera ticket subscription that I'm sure, you know, they they can they will inevitably not renew. But they have for at least the next what I can only assume is like the next few weeks, the next few months. So there are still these things that link them and that cause these, you know, interactions to bump into one another from time to time. Right, right, yeah, you know, and again, they, they they have a child, and especially the fact that that child lives in the same city that they do, right, you know, does, doesn't allow for them to, you know, separate as much as, you know, maybe, maybe you'd want to, right, if you're trying to, you know, separate and move on, um, but, um, but, 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 yeah, that's the issue, right, is that, you know, Leo is sort of, constantly reminded of the failures of his of, of, of his marriage uh which is you know you know uh, an interesting um you know character character development for him i think right of just a guy who you know is sort of understanding pretty constantly you know what he did and the consequences of it right and even though you know he's still he's you know He's always to the point where he never gets to a point where he regrets what he did, right? But, like, you can still feel bad without having regret necessarily, right? I think that that is sort of the the animating motivations of 
of Leo's character, you know, especially in, in this episode, right? Of a guy who, you know, feels a certain way about what he did and, you know, is is not not necessarily super happy with the with with the results necessarily, even if he would do it again in the heartbeat, right? And again, this uh I don't know, this this whole arc really emphasizes something that we've seen again and again with with Leo at the beginning, but with all the relationships that we see at the White House and will continue to see at the White House, and that is this catch twenty two uh, that I think is a great, you know, is is a terrible scenario for them all to go to, where um, if they if they go down perhaps the CJ route, right, of of choosing to date somebody that is already in the industry, um, then they run into issues of you know conflicts of interest, like CJ is going to run into with Danny, uh, or they run into the situations that uh, maybe Josh and Mandy have experienced, where. Uh, they hardly have any time to interact with one another because they're both super busy. And when they do interact, they're both really stressed and it's not a great scenario. Whereas if you go down the opposite track that Leo went down, uh, or, you know, we've seen, you know, President Bartlett and a few of the other characters who date people or end up marrying people that are not in the political sphere, the, the, inverse of that right the 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 other leg of this catch-22 is that then those people end up uh you know with people that don't necessarily fully understand the commitments of the office that they hold and therefore uh, there's tensions that are caused by this and and perhaps both options in this catch-22 could be fixed by simply communicating with your partner but that doesn't seem to be a consistent option for these people so no. instead both tracks lead to inevitable uh, failure of relationships, uh, unless perhaps you're President Bartlett, who seems to at times talk to his wife, which is an important skill for him to have. Yeah, but even you know the the president uh, and and uh, Dr. Bartlett relationship, not the world's most healthiest relationship either, right? It's it might be the most healthy relationship on this show, but like that's not saying much, you know. That's you know the bar is in hell to 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 you know make a to you know steal a line there um one thing before before we leave this first scene uh, i did pull up uh, the u.s inflation calculator um a six dollar and 15 cent coffee in 1999 would be the equivalent of paying 11 dollars and 39 cents for coffee today so, so yeah a, a little bit expensive there um uh, and again i think that that also you know tells you a little bit about about about, about the leo character there just in the fact that you know, you understand a little bit more of like what kind of guy he is, right? That he has the money to be living in a hotel that is obviously an expensive hotel, right? He's not living in a, you know, Motel 6, right? He's living in a what is obviously a very expensive hotel. And that, you know, I think gives you a little bit more of, of the Leo backstory, right? As a guy who was, you know, wildly successful in, in business before he entered politics, right? And that, that you know, Again, you know, they're, they're not explicitly telling you that yet, but I think that it's definitely, you know, laying the seeds of, of who the Leo character is. I would agree with that, but I would also emphasize a point that we've discussed earlier with uh, Josh. I think we mostly talked about it with Josh and CJ uh, in, in a, maybe one of the first three episodes, is that one of the first things that we see is that these people are making, I mean, 
decent money. They're 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 public servants, right? So so it's not obscene, but they are making a decent amount of money for these roles. And the limiting factor for them in terms of you know what they do or what they spend their money on is not how much money they make, but rather how much time yes. they have to spend that money. And so we see now. I mean, when when. Uh, two episodes ago or so, we saw what Leo's home looks like. It's this beautiful place in in what is, you know, inevitably a very expensive neighborhood in Washington D.C., which just adds to the costs, of course. And so, uh, uh, whether or not he was successful in business prior to this, which obviously plays a part in 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 a lot of this, we also see that he has you know, an income that would allow for this lifestyle or something similar to it just by the nature of his job. But we never see him driving around fancy cars or or going on expensive vacations or anything like that because he simply doesn't have the time to do that. He, as we know, barely has time to talk to his wife. So uh, clearly, the like I said, the, the limiting factor is time for all of these people and not necessarily money. Yeah, so I guess, you know, you... you... You, you, you might as well spend $12 on a coffee if you're like, I, I, I have so much money, I don't know what to do with it, right? I might as well buy $12 coffee, right? You know, $12 coffee is better than, you know, regular coffee. Might, might as well, might as well buy it because, you know, I'm not going to not gonna ever be able to spend all my money because I just work, you know, 24 hours a day. Exactly. I, my favorite example akin to this is when Donna bets, you know, $100 worth of Josh's money and it's played off as like a, you know, that's like nothing. Like a hundred dollars to Josh is absolutely nothing, uh, because again, he he couldn't go out and spend that money if he wanted to, uh, because he just is too busy. Yeah, yeah, right. You know that that you know when when they get time off, right? I mean, I mean, again, like like Sam points out that he, you know, before he gets invited to the opera, that his plans was he was going to go home and he was going to sit on his couch and watch Monday Night Football, right? That like that was his. That was his big, you know, plans for the end of the day, right? Is like go home and like sit down and watch TV because you're exhausted, right? Like when you get a chance to have time off, like you don't want to do anything, right? You just want to like sit around and, you know, you know, you know, find something, you know, lazy to do, right? And, and you know, again, you know, it doesn't cost any money to, 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 to do that, right? You know, and so it's like, again, these guys are so overworked that, yeah, they, 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 they have, they have plenty of money and nothing to spend it on, um. But yeah, so so Mallory decides that that, that she she's gonna walk walk the walk uh, her dad over over to back to work, and she uses that as an excuse to come in and stop by and and, and invite Sam to to the opera. I thought this this was this was quite a funny scene because you could tell that Sam does not want to 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 attend uh, the Beijing opera. Uh, you know, you know, he's making jokes about it, or he makes a joke that he says, oh, see, before you came along, all I was going to do was go home and watch football. So now I've got, you know, now, now I'm so glad that I have these these other plans, right, that I can, uh, you know, go to the Beijing Opera with you, right, you know, and, you know, you know, and, and uh, Mallory also, you know, makes the point that this is, this is not a date, and that you know it's not a date, because uh, for no, uh, for, uh, under no circumstances will there be sex for you at the end of the night, and I thought that Sam makes a great joke that he says, "Wow, you know, with, you know, I was I was so excited to go to the Beijing Opera. Now with the guarantee of no sex, how could I turn this down?" No, it's a it's a very entertaining setup for what is I don't know for aside from that 
point seems like a date. There's kind of been this will they, won't they back and forth between Mallory and Sam when uh, Mallory and uh, the president's daughter uh, ask Josh to invite Sam to the bar that night. Uh, they are doing so, you know, Josh says, oh, well, I'm not going to invite Sam just so you can have a booty call. There seems to be some kind of, you know, rumor mill that there's something going on between them. And the fact that uh, when Mallory has an extra ticket to the opera, her first thought is to invite Sam really kind of speaks to the fact that maybe there are some some feelings there. Uh, maybe they're just friends, but, you know, aside from her her discussion of a lack of sex at the end of the night, it seems like they get along quite well. So I'm, I'm intrigued. You know, I'm interested to see where this goes further. Yeah, no, and I was going to say, even, you know, she could say that it's not a date, right? But it's like she's very clearly flirting with him and he's very clearly flirting with her and she's, you know, you know, still choosing to stay in this conversation, right? Even when she could, you know, leave at any minute, right? So it's like she, she's obviously not as opposed to the idea of it being a date as she might outwardly say, right? Because if she really was, you know, she could say like, no, I'm serious, like stop flirting with me, right? And she, you know, she very clearly chooses not to say that, right? Even though, you know, you know, th th that would get her out of this, you know, conversation, but she chooses to stay in the flirty conversation. She chooses to reciprocate, right? Even if, you know, you know, she's sort of openly saying that it's, it's not a date, right? It's like, you know, yeah, maybe this is not a date, but it's definitely not silly in the idea, you know, closing out the idea of, of, of a future encounter being a date between the two of them, right? And so that, you know, so sets it up nicely, right? That, um, you know, everybody sort of recognizes that, right? Including Leo, right? When, 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 when Sam comes to, to tell Leo that he's, he's going to the opera, right? Leo picks up pretty quickly, right? That, you know, hey, maybe it's not a date, but it's definitely not, not a date, right? Right, yeah, there's definitely a balance. And, and we see, I mean, again, another sign that this is probably potentially a date, or at least in the gray area, is the way that Leo reacts to it, where he says, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then even as Sam leaves the room, he's still trying to convince himself uh, that he is, in fact, fine with that situation. Right, no, for, for, for sure that there's, there's definitely, again, another example, right, of somebody saying something that you can tell pretty clearly that they don't, they don't believe 100%, right? You know, Mallory does not believe 100% that they're not on a date. And Leo definitely does not feel 100% that he's okay with them going on this, you know, you know, half date or whatever, whatever you might want to call it there. Um, I, I do also think that the, 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 scene, the scene was quite funny where you have um, CJ coming to tell Leo uh, that, that, that Danny has this story and um you know sam coming there to tell leo that uh, he's going on going to go to the opera with mallory and the fact they were just both there in the office and you know they're, they're both there like what's your thing they're like oh my, my thing's nothing oh my thing's nothing and then leo comes in and he goes what do you guys got and they're like oh we're not here together he's like well can somebody just like tell me what's going on like what do you guys do we just like sit in my office you know it was it was quite a funny scene of them like you know but both trying to you know, act casual, right? Because CJ doesn't want the panic about the the horn story, and and Sam wants you know Leo to be in a good mood when he tells him this, right? And so they're both trying to play it cool and you know sort of failing, I think, a little bit. 
Yeah, no, this is a this is kind of a microcosm of the appearances or everything situation where even within this team, uh, the people kind of prioritize, uh, you know, venting up and venting to Leo and asking his opinions before they necessarily go out to their peers. And we see that even when they do go to their peers, it's a very calculated and, you know, a safe scenario where, you know, uh, CJ will go to Mandy and say as little information as she can about what happened to get advice. And, you know, similarly, when Josh goes to Toby or something like that, like, generally speaking, they're kind of playing it safe and, and, and not divulging too much because the only people that they can fully, you know, trust to work through these things are potentially like Leo and the president, right? They, they, they always want to be sending things up. Right. And that there's, you know, like, like, like going off of that, right. That there's like a car, car compartmentalization of these things, right. That even if you trust somebody, they've got their own shit to deal with. You can't come in and be like, Hey, here's, here's a problem. I'm going to, you know, tell you everything that's going on. Right. It's like, then they're just going to like panic or whatever. Right. So you come with someone and you say, Hey, I think there's a specific thing that this person can help me with. So I'm going to go to them with that. Right. And I'm not going to allow them to panic. I'm not going to allow them to be overwhelmed by this because they need to be, you know, paying attention to, um, their own things that they're working on. Right. Because everybody can't deal with everything or else nothing would ever get done. Right. And so you need to only go to people when there's something that you think they can help you with and you don't want them to panic or get worried about the overall situation that's going on because, you know, that would be, you know, bad news. Exactly. And, you know, as you, as you said, I'll just emphasize it again. You have to go to these people with the sliver of something that they can help you with immediately. Uh, and we know this because obviously if you go to, I, I mean, I, I will point out that the women tend to be a little bit better about this than the men. If you go to Toby or Josh or Sam with one of these problems and you give them too, too much information, they're going to immediately get really excited probably about, you know, helping out with this thing now. And they, now they want to jump on this and, and, and they might drop what they were working on prior to this. So uh, I completely agree. I think it's just a matter of, you know, setting it up in such a way that, you're not going to uh, distract the other person because as we've seen time and time again, uh, on the average day here in the West Wing, every single individual person is probably working on something that's more important than, you know, 99% of other problems. Right. And, and, and again, that, you know, you know, if, if somebody gets distracted by something else, then like they're not doing something they probably should be doing. Right. So it's like you can't go to them. And again, like you point out with them getting distracted, I think that ties great into the, you know, birthday message uh, plot here at the at the end of the episode. Right. Where um, where, where where Charlie comes and he's received um, he's received a letter that one of the and again, you do you do a good job pointing this out. They just say assistant secretary in the episode. But there are there are five uh, assistant secretaries uh, of transportation, right? So one of five assistant secretaries of transportation is, is having his 50th birthday. And so it's sort of customary for um, them to receive a, a birthday card from the white house. And so Charlie is just going to Leo and saying like, Hey, I just, I just got this assignment. Who should I give it to? And so Leo is initially prepared to say, you know, give it to one of the junior speech writers, right? That it's, you know, not that it's, low important right but it's low stakes and also 
pretty easy to write a to write a write a birthday message, right? To say, you know, hey, you know, happy birthday! Thanks for well, the work you do as Assistant Secretary of Transportation. You know, pretty easy, right? And so he's originally going to give it to a low-level staffer, and then he sort of gets the you know you know e- evil grin in his eyes and uh, and you know comes up with the idea that he can he can give this to Sam and. He can get Sam to miss the opera, not go on this, you know, opera date with Mallory by giving it to Sam. And so, um, you know, he gives it to Sam and initially Sam is confused and he says, like, are you sure that he didn't mean, like, give this to, like, one of the low level people? And Charlie's like, no, he meant give it to you. And so Sam goes, "Okay, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to go. I'm going to, you know, you know, get this, get this cranked out as quick as possible. But then, um, you know, his perfectionist nature takes over and he decides that he is going to write the perfect birthday message and it overwhelmingly takes over the rest of his night right and he 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 does not have the ability to uh you know make something that's good enough right he ha- it has to be perfect i think it, th- that it ties in right that at the beginning of the episode we saw that um that i that that sam and uh toby as well feel that their writing as of late has not been the best, right? That they, you know, are talking about like, oh, this speech is not our best. You know, they they make the joke like our talent couldn't have gone very far. We just need to find it, right? And so, you know, because that's sort of the background is, right, that Sam, who is a perfectionist, and that's, you know, one of his defining character traits, I think, right, is his perfectionist ability feels like his work as of late has been bad. And so that further incentivizes him to, write and to make his work you know the best he can do right even though again it really doesn't matter how good the birthday message to one of five assistant secretaries of transportation is absolutely and i think that this perfectionism is such a great character detail for sam because not only is it an interesting reason to have him hired like i think that it really explains why they want him on the team uh but it also you know, exhibits itself as a flaw when we see him pushing off this date, uh, or or what could have been maybe might not be a date with Mallory uh, for the sake of writing, like you're saying, what the, what is in reality is superfluous uh, and and you know n- low priority project. Uh, my favorite my favorite line about the birthday message is that uh, you know when Mallory says, "Well, oh, it's his 50th birthday. They couldn't have seen this coming for the last 50 years." You know, like, no. like this is such a low, low, you know, stakes thing. Uh, but obviously, he's so passionate about it, and it's why uh, Toby and Sam are one of my favorite duos in the whole show. I love the way that they interact with each other, uh, and and kind of this older grizzled guy with the younger perfectionist, uh, you know, a, a assistant. I I really do love the dynamic that they have. No, absolutely. I, I think that the 50 years line is is great. It's definitely the line of the episode, in my opinion. Um, and another thing that I think is like funny and sort of ironic about this, right, is that like in general, right, the better speech you write, the more salience it's going to have, the more whatever. But like this is like oh, this is, you know, as much as Sam wants to say it's not a birthday card, it's just a birthday card. Right. And the meaning or what makes the birthday card special is the fact that it's signed by the president, right? That it's on the, you know, paper with the white house seal at the top, right? Like that's what makes the birthday card special much more than the words on it. Right. Is that, you know, this is something that you're going to be able to show to your grandkids and, you know, your grandkids will show to their grandkids of like, look, my grandpa, you know, 
has a card from the president, right? You know, like that's what makes this special, right? That's the, you know, that's the thing that, you know, matters about, you know, correspondence from the White House in general, right? Is the fact that it has a president's signature on it, right? Not necessarily any of the content, right? So it's like, not only does this not really matter in the grand scheme of things, but like what this guy is going to care about is the fact that it's a card signed by the president, not that it, you know, has the best poetry and prose of any card ever written, right? Like, like you know, that doesn't matter, right? You know, he's not going to like this card any more or any less because the message is, you know, good or great, right? If it was like a shitty message, maybe, you know, he wouldn't, he'd be, you know, disappointed, right? But it's like, he's not going to be any happier on his birthday because his card had like the best, you know, written birthday message ever, right? Which is like, makes it even more funny, right? Of like how much this matters to Sam and then ultimately even Toby at the end. Absolutely. No, I, and I think that that's part of the reason that it was so, I don't know, you could kind of tell that there was something off when he went to take his first draft to the president because the president turns around and says, let's like really get this. Let's really do a job of this. And and you're realizing that Leo had a reason to to make Sam work on this. But why is the president doing this? And at first, admittedly, my first reaction was, oh, the president's like kind of nerding out right now. And he's like actually wanting this to be like a really good message. But, uh, you know, obviously it's revealed later on that he's he's a co-conspirator in this plot to avoid uh, this this potential date with Mallory. Yeah, no, no. And then, and then, and then I think the sort of the, 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 the climax scene of the episode here is Mallory figures out what's going on. She comes to, um, to sort of confront her dad, and um, you know, ultimately, yeah, President President Bartlett comes in, and he, you know, he 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 reads off Leo's schedule, and he sort of, you know, tells her a story of which, you know, ultimately he says the moral is like, you know, a like like lay off your dad. He's doing the best he can, right? And that that sort of is, you know you know, puts, puts a bow in this episode, right, of that all these people are working a job that is, you know, borderline impossible at times, and so they're just out here doing their best, even if, you know, it doesn't always look that way, right, or they're not always as successful as they, they may, maybe wish they could be. Right, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it's the classic, you know, the cliche of, like, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. Right. And clearly many of these people fit into that trope of, of these are all hyper-capable people, but when it comes down to it, they cannot juggle all of the responsibilities that they are being assigned or assigning to themselves. No, absolutely, right? And I think that especially, you know, we see what is a theme throughout the entirety of of this show, which is that you know, these characters have lots of personal relationships, right? With their family, with their friends, with their, you know, potential romantic partners. And, you know, they struggle to deal with them in relation to their job at the White House. And I think that an interesting thing that I thought specifically about this uh, scene in particular is how Leo seems to finally take responsibility for his own actions um here right that he says you know he makes the comment that i understand why your mom hates me i wouldn't her the day i took over the campaign and you know that is a you know that is a change through um 
you know, in terms of how he how he's been interacting with this in the past, right? And I think that that sets up, you know, a little bit of character growth for for Leo and a dive into how all these characters will deal with approaching romantic relationships in the future, right? Including obviously Sam in this episode, right? And you know, potentially, you know, potentially, you know, in the future with Mallory, you know, we'll we'll see how that goes and you know how will all these other people deal with their relationships, right? Obviously Bartlett is still married. He, you know, his relationship still works to some extent, right? And how does he keep that relationship working? And how does, you know, Leo and Toby who are divorced because of their job in the White House largely, how do they deal with, you know, potential romantic relationships in the future? And then, you know, whether it's Sam or Josh or CJ who are, who are single, never married people, right? How do they deal with potential romantic relationships, right? That is something that, you know, it's all sort of tied together, right? Even though they're very different scenarios, right? Of one guy who's currently married, two guys that are are are, are divorced, or I guess Leo's case is still still just separated, and then three characters, well, and then even four, I guess, if you if you throw Charlie into there, right? As he'll do, right? Of sort of you know four characters who are you know single, never married, right? And that you know they all still run into some of the same issues, right? Of a demanding job and also the personality of the person that wants and takes and succeeds at this job and the pitfalls that that allows for a personal relationship. Right. And I, I, I like that they have this, uh, this parallel or, or not necessarily a parallel, but we see multiple characters that are, on this this track right like we we see the result of a career in politics we see the beginnings of a career in politics and how uh one the kind of basic interpretation of that or the basic view of that is you know josh is learning to be a politician and we're seeing these people learn to uh live and work in washington dc and then at the same time while we're watching that arc and we're watching Charlie, the brand new person or Josh kind of halfway through or Leo after a lifetime of, you know, kind of being around this kind of thing, we see branching off of that main arc, all of these subplots of romance or finance or anything like that. Like any, any other thing is, is exacerbated and, and manipulated by that primary process of just living and working in Washington, D.C., no, I, I, absolutely. I think that's something that, you know, you know, we 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 can look at as we go. Right. Is that these people's again, they work, you know, 12, 14, 16 hour days. And so their job is sort of their number one personality trait. And therefore, you know, it impacts everything. Right. That, you know, you know, you know, again, we'll, we'll see all these characters. Right. Have, you know, lots of outside relationships but all of them really are filtered through the lens of, of their job. Right. You know, and, you know, again, the fact that, you know, like we talked before about how that there, this becomes, you know, sort of like a family and there's these family dynamics in play. That's largely because these are the only people in the world that understand what they're going through. Right. And that, you know, as much as, you know, Josh's mother might love him. She can't understand what he's going through, right? In the same way that Leo can. And so Leo is his, you know, surrogate parent figure because Leo understands every problem that Josh has because he's been there, right? And he's 
failed or he succeeded and he can give advice to Josh in a way that, you know, Josh's mom, as much as, you know, she, you know, wants to be there and support him, she doesn't have any idea what he's going through, right? So can't. And and again, like we talked about it and you just mentioned it, that is one of my favorite, I don't know, tropes. No matter how unhealthy it is, it is really nice to see whether it's Leo or President Bartlett with Charlie or something like that. You know, there's always kind of a... These these connections that um, end up popping up that are that are almost familial. Um, I'm getting a call real quick, so I'm going to mute and I'm going to take this. Okay. Well, while Mason uh, takes his call, I will I will point out that um, one of one of my favorite things for this week that I saw um, is was was a fun uh, Twitter interaction that Bradley Whitford got on on on, on Twitter um, where um, the Somebody who works uh, in the office of Senator John Fetterman uh, tweeted out a picture of of Josh Lyman and said, um, "You know, rewatching The West Wing is really than this guy always deserved to be fired." And Bradley Whitford uh, replied with uh, one of the greatest replies ever, where he said, "Like, you know, well, I know that I certainly would have would have quit my job if if my boss." Uh, ran as a progressive and, um, you know, betrayed all those voters, which is, you know, just, just, just a quite funny scene, um, or just quite, quite funny interaction there. Um, and again, you know, seeing the, like how much, you know, this, this show has, has, has impacted, you know, the sort of the, you know, political class of, of my generation, but also even, even the generation before of, you know, how, how, how influential, uh, it, it ultimately is. No, I was just going to say that I was just going to ask if you had any, any final thoughts on this episode here before we hop into who won the episode. Uh, I, uh, I was a big fan of this episode. I thought it was very funny. Um, and my two big favorite things I think were, um, the birthday message. It's a birthday message. It's not just a birthday card. Um, and then also just from a cinema cinematography perspective, the last shot of this episode is like heartbreaking. I think that they do such a good job. The set design in such a way and the, the camera lens makes and 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 I don't know if you noticed this, it makes President Bartlett look so small. They designed it in such a way, I think, I think it was very intentional, where as President Bartlett walks away from uh, Josh at the very end he's walking past all these pillars and he's walking past this giant security guard and it's such it's it's so intentionally done that he just gets smaller and smaller and he shrinks down and he shrinks down and I think that they do that just to make him look so intensely human in these last moments uh, after kind of uh, you know th this this back and forth with Josh about uh, you know how many enemies they have and, and how they're talking more and more about enemies. So that's my big takeaway from, from that last scene is that they shot it very well and, and they made him look very human. Yeah, no. And I think that it, you know, sort of further tells the story, right. Which I think has been a theme in a lot of these episodes, right. Especially in, in episode seven, the last one we did the state dinner, you know, that it's like the president is not all powerful. And that is something that, he struggles with and that's something that they all kind of struggle with right and so i think that it's good that you know he has you know what is a huge win in this episode right they pass their banking bill and they get to preserve the environment in the situation that they want in the place they went to in montana 
but that you know you sort of reveal right that it's like you know you know like josh says right that they're they're fighting these battles that are you know they're, they're not all going to be winnable and they're you know spending so much time focusing on enemies which is not something they necessarily want to be doing and so yeah it is a human moment at the end right that there's a win but the win you know you sort of have, still have to temper your expectations going forward because you know even a win is not you know able to be you know re result in you achieving everything you want right because again the president is just a person the people that work for him are just people and they you know can't achieve everything that they want to necessarily exactly uh in 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 the greco-roman deity way they they are all powerful in appearance alone and in reality they are uh fallible and you know uh subject to the same whims that all humans are no exactly right i think that you know that there is really sort of an underpinning of you know greek tragedy throughout this entire episode right that i think that you know sam especially you know, features the sort of very traditional Greek fatal flaw, right? That he is, you know, he has his job and he's good at his job because he's a perfectionist, but also like he, he is a perfectionist to such a disabling point of view at the end, right? That he can't write a birthday card, right? Like, you know, and that's, I think, very, very, you know, poetic in the sort of ancient greek way as well right and i think so it's 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 great you know obviously you know the white house is you know uh, greco-roman revival architecture so i think that it you know ties in ties in nicely with that as well right of just that there is the underpinnings of of, of a greek tragedy in, in in a lot of what goes on in, the, in this first epi first season of, of the west wing i think absolutely all right well now it is time for uh the all-important uh, who won the episode um so this was this was a very difficult episode for me because I think that you 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 end up in a in a scenario where the outcome is ultimately is pretty good but the path there is 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 a little bit bumpy. Um, I think that ultimately though, um, you know, not to not to be a broken record, but I think I do have to give the win once again to Josh here. I think that he ends up, you know, ultimately obviously he ends up with the um, you know, way to sort of solve the solve the, the 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 Gordian knot of signing this bill, right? That they sign the bill and they you know make Big Sky a national a national monument, which allows them to you know not have their three month negotiation go to waste, but also not you know allow the other side to get a win. And then also, Josh, you know, even though you know he gets his win in the end. He recognizes right, and, and and the enemy speech at the end really, I think, is is mostly Josh realizing that they can't just you know fight you know to the death on every single issue, or else eventually they're going to lose one of these, right? So I think that Josh gets his win, but you know understands to a, a greater degree the stakes and the issues with fighting all the time. So I think that that is why you know why I think Josh Josh gets the win but you who do you have winning the episode here uh I hate I hate to make it three weeks in a row where we're agreeing but I'm gonna have to do it once again I absolutely agree that Josh is the winner of this episode he stood by uh, his opinions from the very beginning and ended up finding a way to make them work in the end and 
that is i think in this show one of the most default measures of success uh the the obviously the the capstone right the the villain speech at the end solidifies that in my opinion and makes it so that really he is not only this this winner in the literal sense but also is guiding the the administration away from maybe a cliff that they're getting too close to so not only is he standing by his guns but he's realizing that maybe he shouldn't do that all the time and that's exactly why i think that josh won this episode as well yeah no i think you're right is that he gets the win but he realizes like this is not going to work every time it worked this time but it's also like you know not something that we can do every time if we want to be able to work with and deal with you know an opposition congress you know that you're gonna have to deal with at least for another year right the midterms are still you know a year off right and so you know best case scenario you win back the house in the midterms you still have another year to deal with you know an opposition congress and so you know you do need to maybe have a little bit more of a deft hand sometimes and so i think that the fact that josh is able to get a very literal win but also like understand that that can't be the case every single time i think really is is the the, the best of both worlds there for josh um all right well that was that was uh, season one episode eight enemies and we will be back uh, next week for season one episode nine the shortlist which will be a fun episode it'll be um, our first time diving into the president's interaction with uh, the judicial branch because we get you know obviously a lot of inner executive branch uh, interactions and we get you know including this episode lots of executive and legislative branch interactions but uh, next week we'll get the first uh, dive into the president's interactions with uh, the judicial branch and his role uh, as the as the nominator of all judicial uh, appointments in the country so that'll be a fun episode next week and uh, we will See you then. Bye.